Hello, everybody. Good morning to our friends in uh, North and South America, and good afternoon to our friends in Europe and the Middle East and, uh, and Africa. Good evening to our friends in Asia. Uh, welcome to our webinar covering how to use citizenship by investment, uh, and then uh, coupled with an application for an E-2 visa to the U.S as an immigration strategy for high net worth individuals. A recording of this webinar will be emailed today to everyone who registered. We're going to be get, getting started in just a minute. We have uh, over 100 people from around the world uh, interested in this subject uh, who we expect will be joining us. But let me start with a, a brief introduction. Today's uh, webinar is, is co-sponsored by uh, the Investment Migration Council. Uh, and also Clasco Immigration Law Partners. The Investment Migration Council is uh, the worldwide association based in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, that deals with uh, citizenship by investment, uh, residence by investment, uh, and all forms of migration through investment. Um, and it brings together academics and professionals in, in the field uh, for uh, uh, both uh, uh, increasing the level of knowledge and also improving public understanding of the issues. The Investment Migration Council has its annual forum, which I highly recommend, uh, which this year will be taking place from June 2 through June 4 uh, in Brussels, Belgium. My name is Ron Clasco. I'm the managing partner of Clasco Immigration Law Partners. Uh, most of you on this webinar know that uh, we are one of the uh, largest immigration law firms in the world, um, and we uh, focus on all aspects of U.S. immigration, and most particularly for this purpose, uh, we have uh, extensive experience both in EB-5, which is uh, the U.S. program for permanent residence by investment, and also E-2 visas, uh, which we're going to be talking about today. Um, I have... Uh, uh, been involved and was lead attorney on the leading case on E-2 visas called Matters of Walsh and Pollard, uh, and I head up the uh, the investment team here at Clasco. I'm joined today by two of our uh, best lawyers in this field, uh, both Jessica Denisi and Oliver Yang, uh, our attorneys at Clasco. Jessica is based in our New York office. Oliver is based in our Philadelphia office and both of them have extensive experience in, uh, in the topic we're talking about today, which is CBI and E2 visas. So with that stated, let's, uh, let's get started. And I uh, wanna start with a little bit of background as to why we're all here. Uh, and then uh, we're going to get into uh, some of the contrast between E2 and EB5, which is of interest to a lot of you on this webinar. Uh, we'll talk about the advantages of E-2 visa and why it's the, uh, for most people, the most beneficial visa you can get to the U.S. Uh, then we'll focus on exactly how you qualify for an E-2, what some of the hot issues are, uh, and we'll end with a discussion of uh, the countries that are the primary countries for obtaining citizenship by investment uh, in, a, in, a, in a treaty country. So what brings us here? Um, the EB-5 program in the U.S., the Investment Immigration Program, uh, has been exceedingly popular and has been in some ways a victim of its popularity. Um, and what has happened in recent times is there's been a damper on the, uh, the EB-5 program uh, caused by a number of things. The most immediate issue has been that as of November 21, the investment amount increased from 500,000 for most investors to 1.8 million for most investors and 900,000 for some investors. Obviously, that has reduced both the attractiveness of the EB-5 program and the ability of many people to consider investing that amount of money. That has been coupled with vastly increased processing times for EB-5, such that uh, uh, certainly two to four years is all within the normal time frame for how long it takes to immigrate based on EB-5. Uh, and that has eliminated EB-5 as a short-term strategy for immigration to the US. It's more of a long-term strategy. 
And in some countries, most especially China uh, and also India and Vietnam, uh, it has been accompanied by quota backlogs, meaning that it can be a many year wait beyond the processing times uh, until someone can immigrate to the US uh, through EB-5 from those countries. So we were uh, uh, leaders in developing a solution for our clients who were interested in EB-5, but needed a way to be able to get to the US uh, in the short term. And uh, uh, were willing to and interested in investing in a business in the US uh, and, and uh, as a way of accomplishing that goal. So E2 is not a new strategy for people investing in the US. Uh, I've been practicing for many decades in the field of immigration and we've been doing E2s for all of those decades. And in fact, there are over 80 countries in the world that have investment treaties with the US that allow their nationals to apply for E2 visas. What is new is the concept of uh, having people from countries such as the ones I mentioned. I mentioned China and India and Vietnam. We could also mention uh, Brazil and UAE and South, uh, uh, and South Africa and Russia and many other countries that have a lot of people interested in immigrating to the US and investing in the US, but do not have an investment treaty from their country. And for them, the solution is to obtain a second or third passport in a country that does have an investment treaty. We call that CBI or Citizenship by Investment. And it usually involves an investment of anywhere from about $100,000 to several hundred thousand dollars in, uh, in either a business or as a donation to the government uh, in one of those countries to obtain a passport, uh, which then enables them to apply for an E2 visa. So we started this as a, a way of dealing with our clients in China who had a 15-year wait for, uh, for EB-5 uh, and this was a way of being able to spend that waiting period uh, in the US uh, while uh, running a business here, while having their children go to school here. And what we quickly found out is that for many people, it was not just a way of filling that gap, but it was a solution in and of itself so that many people felt that getting an E2 visa to the US um, eliminated the need to uh, uh, to consider EB-5. So for some people it was instead of, and for some people in addition to an EB-5 application. So Oliver, I'd, I'd like to, uh, to start with you. And uh, a lot of the people who are listening uh, are very aware of uh, EB-5, maybe a little bit less aware of E-2. Um, there are some differences between the two and some things that are the same. So would you help our listeners understand uh, the differences between E2 and EB-5? Sure. So we want to start the introduction of E2 by uh, comparing E2 with EB-5 because obviously EB-5 is an immigration option that most people are familiar with. Uh, to start, uh, E2 is an immigrant visa and EB-5 is a green card. Uh, what I usually hear in my experience is some people will confuse E2 with EB2 because a lot of them will come up to me and ask me about questions uh, for EB2, but actually E2 and EB2, they are totally different categories. They share very little commonality, but E2 does share some common commonality with EB5 because they're both uh, based on an investment. However, one is a non-immigrant visa and one is a green card category, which will lead to uh, permanent residence. The second difference is that the timing is very different. E2 can be obtained very quickly. I think the quickest case we've seen is about two to three days after interview, we get an approval. So from start to finish, it can probably be finished uh, as quick as a, one month. And usually it's, it can be finished in a few months. EB5 takes significantly more time. Uh, I think the, the latest update from the USCIS official processing time is 33 to 50 months. So if you uh, count the average time, it'll probably take more than two years. And plus, you know, some countries are subject to the quota backlog, which would take the time into a much longer period. Uh, in terms of taxation, 
EB-5 will result in taxation on worldwide income because uh, we're not tax attorneys, but my understanding is that, you know, green card holders will be considered residents of the U.S. for tax purposes. E-2 holders may not, depending on the time he or she spends uh, in the U.S. In terms of the uh, actual uh, requirements for investment amount and jobs, EB-5 has very stringent requirements. You know, there are minimum threat, uh, investment threshold and a job creation threshold, and E2 does not. And I think we'll get to that later. We'll explain that in more detail later. Uh, the next difference is uh, the filing process is very different. Uh, usually, in most cases, E2 is filed at a U.S. consulate. Uh, different consulates in the world have different procedures, but uh, they share some, you know, common uh, common filing strategy and the timing, timing-wise, they're very similar. EB-5 is filed at the USCIS. Uh, everybody knows in this day and age, uh, being able to avoid filing with the USCIS is a huge advantage uh, for obtaining an immigration uh, benefit. EB-5 is available for all countries. It is based on the country of birth. So by uh, getting a different passport, it doesn't change the uh, EB-5 prospect for an applicant. Uh, E2 is only available for nationals of countries with uh, E2 treaties with the U.S., uh, but it is based on the nationality. So by obtaining uh, the nationality of an E2 treaty country, then a non-treaty uh, country national can do E2 after uh, doing that. Uh, Ownership-wise, E2 requires 50% ownership. Uh, EB-5 does not. So E2, for E2, it is the uh, nationals of the E2 treaty country has to collectively uh, own more than 50% of ownership. But in most E2 investor cases, we're talking about one investor who holds more than 50%. Uh, lastly, E2 can be applied directly to EB5. The reason we, uh, the regional center uh, model doesn't apply is because usually it doesn't meet the 50% ownership requirement above. But uh, if it's an EB-5, if it's a direct EB-5, I think we have a handout that talks directly about how, uh, what are the, what the issues are, and how to convert an E-2 investment into a direct EB-5 investment. Uh, thank you, Oliver. I should mention that, that uh, everything we're discussing was the subject of a trilogy of uh, of blogs um, that uh, I would uh, recommend your uh, your reference to. You can find it at uh, classicolaw.com, uh, and these blogs were published uh, uh, in uh, in January and February of uh, 2020. Uh, uh, so we have blogs on uh, all aspects of what we're discussing. Uh, Jessica, uh, so Oliver has explained to us the uh, the differences between E2 and EB5. So why don't you focus, please, on uh, on the E2 visa? I mentioned in my introduction. Uh, that I view the E-2 visa as the best and most advantageous visa that anyone can get to the U.S. Um, tell us what the, some of the advantages of the E-2 visa are. Sure. Uh, so one of the, the first ones, the primary ones, is an E-2 is a five-year visa with unlimited extension, which is significantly longer than a lot of other non-immigrant options, uh, such as an L-1. It's granted for a much shorter period of time. Um, Oliver already kind of touched on this, but an E-2 uh, can be obtained in a matter of months, um, and it's, it's usually processed through the consulate. Um, so if you need to be into the U.S. quickly, an E-2 is a fantastic option. Uh, we find, um, in particular, speaking to, to, to clients, um, that this is really advantageous for people with kids or, or something along those lines that are interested in being here sooner rather than later so that their kids can start school. Um, and E2 includes the, the primary applicant, the E2 investor. It includes the investor's spouse and all children that are under the age of 21. And that's just with one investment and one application. Um, and then after the E2 is granted, uh, the kids are eligible to study in, in U.S. schools, in, in public or in private schools. Um, now, it depends on the, in the state, uh, but in a lot of states also, uh, children or dependents of an E2 or 
can get uh, in-state tuition. Um, but that, that's state by state. Um, the E2 doesn't have a residency requirement. Um, so you're eligible to live in the U.S. as much as you like or as little as you like without risking or impacting um, your visa. Um, this would allow the flexibility to still, you know, reside abroad a lot of the time to manage businesses or investments that you might have abroad um, as needed. Um, uh, but as a caveat to that, uh, while in the U.S., the E-2 investor is only eligible to work for the E-2 company. Uh, however, uh, the spouse of the investor uh, is able to come to the U.S. and apply for employment authorization after arriving in the U.S. and is eligible to work anywhere after that. Um, this is a significant advantage. Um, Ron has written a number of blogs about the fact that, uh, for example, the spouses of, of H-1B, people on H-1B visas do not have um, this option. This is a huge advantage of the E-2. Um, as Oliver kind of touched on this, um, because of the residency requirements, um, it is possible to avoid uh, U.S. taxes on worldwide income with an E-2. Um, again, um, it depends on the time that you spend in the U.S., um, and as Oliver mentioned, uh, we, we can't provide tax counsel, but we would recommend that you get it, but I, this is an advantage of the E-2 as well. Um, an E-2 investment can involve the active day-to-day -day management of a business, but it's not required. Um, so like I said, this gives you the option um, to monitor um, investments worldwide or other businesses worldwide. Um, at the same time as having an E-2. Um, it's not incompatible. Um, an E-2 can, but doesn't need to, as Oliver mentioned, um, be applied for through USCIS. It can be done as at the consulate, uh, which is, it, it allows for a, a more personal review. Um, you submit an application, the materials are reviewed, you're interviewed by, you know, a real human being at the consulate. Uh, so it adds kind of a human component to the process, um, which I think is a big advantage. Um, there's no quota for an E-2, um, so there's no chance of a future backlog to obtaining the visa. As Ron mentioned in the beginning, one of the reasons that the, the popularity of the E-2 has grown is because of the significant backlog for EB-5. Um, and that's not going to come up as an issue here. You and your family would be eligible to immigrate shortly after the E-2 is approved. Um, and uh, Oliver talked about this a little bit. Um, with some planning, uh, your E-2 equity investment can be transformed into an EB-5 investment. Um, so it allows for the E-2 to be a really efficient stepping stone to applying for a green card. Uh, we, we do always tell people when we start this process, though, uh, if, if the ultimate plan is to later turn the E-2 visa into an EB-5 visa, we need to be sure to structure the investment and the business so that it will later work for EB-5. And, and on the last point that Jessica mentioned, the uh, using the E-2 investment with advanced planning uh, with the goal of eventually doing an EB-5 green card uh, was the subject of one of our January 2020 blogs where we go into great detail uh, because that can be a somewhat complex process, uh, but we've certainly done it successfully for many investors around the world. So uh, we, we know now about the differences between the E-2 visa and the EB-5 green card. Uh, we know now about the numerous advantages uh, that an E-2 visa brings to uh, uh, a high net worth individual. So now we want to focus on the uh, requirements for someone to obtain an E-2 visa. You want to start us off on that, Oliver? Sure. So the first requirement, of course, is uh, the applicant has to be a national of E-2 treaty country. So there, uh, I think there are usually two ways to find out about uh, the E-2 treaty information. One way is to go to State Department's website. It, they, it has uh, a list of E-2 countries and with uh, whether E-2 is available for a country or it's a E-1 or other E kind of E visas. 
The other one is if you're looking for a specific country, you can go to State Department's, uh, it's called Country uh, Reciprocity Table. To look at a specific country, you click on the E visa classification. It will tell you if E2 is available and if available, what is the validity period for that E2 visa. Uh, so there are the two ways to find out whether uh, a country is an E2 treaty country. The second requirement is what's called the 50% rule, which I briefly, uh, uh, briefly discussed. Uh, the app, the uh, E2, the, the nationals of E2 treaty country must own at least 50%. Uh, in the events, in the cases where there are uh, multi, there are parent companies, and they will have to examine the corporate structure and see whether a foreign, uh, whether a foreign foreign parent company owns more than 50%. The third requirement is a substantiality requirement, which I think is probably probably one of the most intricate requirements for E2. Uh, so I guess we'll just uh, we'll just discuss some important several important concepts there. First of all, there's no definite amount, so there's never a, a, a threshold for E2 investment. Uh, for some businesses, we have maybe recommended uh, investment amount, but the law does not provide for any minimum investment for E2. However, the law does look at, look at whether an investment is substantial by examining whether the investment is necessary for the uh, business enterprise to be successful, uh, to ensure the financial commitment by the investor, and that is something that the council offers, so we'll definitely look at very closely during the E2 ap application process. Uh, another important concept is that it can be a new business or an existing business. So that leads to another thing that we want to discuss, which is a proportionality test. Uh, when determining substantiality, the council officer will weigh the uh, investment amount against the actual cost of the business. So for example, if we're talking about a uh, mom and pop ice cream shop, then I will say the actual cost of the business is probably a few hundred thousand dollars. But if we're talking about uh, an automobile company, then I will say probably it's billions. So it'll they will they will they will weigh the actual investment amount against the cost. And the lower the actual cost is, the higher the proportion uh, the proportion the higher it's required for an E2 investment to be substantial. Um, so that that being said when it comes to new business versus existing business the existing business the actual cost for a new business is usually the cost that's needed to start the business and the actual cost for the existing business they usually look at the fair market value of the business so that with that in mind uh, i think we have a question about whether it can be a franchise and the answer is yes as long as it meets substantial requirements if it's a new business we usually have to show that uh you know the the money is being spent on the business and it is uh the investment is substantial because it's largely it's being used for all the things that needed that need that need to be done to start the business if it's an existing business we look at the market value and to see if it meets a substantial investment requirement as, as you as you listen to the requirements uh, that oliver and jessica discussed with you uh, it becomes pretty clear that there's a fair amount of flexibility in the E-2 visa that does not exist in other uh, visa categories in the U.S. Uh, people are always surprised that there's no exact investment amount. And, uh, you know, using uh, an example similar to what Oliver used, uh, there, there are some cases where a, an investment of 100000 or 150000 just as an example, uh, may be plenty. If you have, if you're uh, setting up a consulting company in the U.S. and you already have clients here, uh, and you can show that with a with a hundred thousand dollar investment, you're likely to be very successful because you already have a lot of business and you just need a small office uh, and a computer and a telephone. Uh, then you may be able to show that an investment at that level is sufficient. Uh, but if you're setting up a, a manufacturing company in the U.S., there's no way that you're gonna be successful with a 100,000 investment. Um, Jessica, the, uh, Oliver's gone through some of the requirements for the E2. How about some of the other requirements? Okay, uh, so the next requirement we're going to talk about is, is the requirement that the business not be marginal. 
And, and this is actually a perfect example of the flexibility of an E2. Um, as we talked about before uh, with EB5, uh, the investment has to create at least 10 full-time jobs for U.S. workers. Um, the E2 also requires the creation of jobs, but the rule is not hard and fast in the same sense. Um, for a business not to be marginal, it basically means that the E2 company should not be for, should be forecast to do more than just support or create a job for the E2 investor or the investor's family. Uh, you have to be able to show that it has or, or will create other jobs. Um, so uh, we would recommend or we prefer applications where we can already show uh, the existence of some employees at the business and that there would be a plan to create some additional jobs um, or that the business is about to hire people and open its, its doors. But like I said, unlike EB-5, there's no numerical requirement um, and there's no requirement that a certain number of people need to be full-time or part-time. Um, the final requirement that we're going to talk about today is the requirement that the investor develop and direct the business. Um, we sort of touched on this before when we were, we were explaining that the investor doesn't necessarily need to be in the U.S. at all times running the business, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. It's compatible for an E2 investor to manage the business through a manager. Um, so, for example, Oliver was just talking about franchises, and, and this is where a franchise works really well for E2. It's perfectly acceptable uh, for the investor to, you know, invest in a business that's going to own a few restaurants and to hire a manager or managers to oversee the day-to-day -day operation of the business for the investor, and then the investor is able to develop, develop and direct the business through the managers. Uh, thank you, Jessica. Let me uh, let me mention that uh, we will be leaving plenty of time for questions and answers. Uh, the uh, we received uh, about uh, about fifteen uh, questions in advance of our program, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible. Uh, and we uh, are also receiving uh, questions uh, as we as we go along uh, today. So feel free to submit your questions, and we'll do the best we can to answer as many as possible. In, uh, in line with what we said about the flexibility of the E-2, there's also flexibility in where to file the E-2. Uh, so Oliver mentioned uh, at the beginning that unlike EB-5, which must be filed with the U.S. Immigration Service, uh, a very large majority of E-2 applications are filed directly at the U.S. consulate, which is a significant advantage. But not only that, uh, you can choose which U.S. consulate you wish to apply in. So uh, we're going to be discussing the fact that the, uh, the three countries that we're dealing with that have these CBI programs and U.S. treaties are Grenada, Turkey, and Montenegro. Uh, the largest percentage by far of these applications have been through Grenada. So for our, our clients who obtain Grenada citizenship, one option they have is to apply at the U.S. consulate uh, that has jurisdiction over Grenada, and that happens to be in Barbados. Uh, a second option that we always have is that somebody can apply at the U.S. consulate in their country of citizenship. A third option is that if a, if a person is a, a resident of a country other than their country of citizenship, they can apply at the U.S. consulate in that country. Uh, and part of the service we provide when we're uh, working with our clients, uh, which can be a very important part of the service, is choosing on a customized basis what is the best place for that person to apply. And it's not always going to be the same. If the three options I just mentioned uh, for various reasons may not be beneficial, then we look at really any other country in the world because a U.S. consulate in any country can, if it wishes, accept jurisdiction of an E-2 visa application. And in some cases, we will recommend that. Now, I want to emphasize that uh, this is another way this is different than EB-5. In EB-5, the Immigration Service has already approved the petition. And the actual interview at the U.S. consulate uh, tends to be a little bit less important. For the E-2, no one has seen the application before the U.S. consulate, 
and the interview is absolutely critical. And that's the reason that we spend a significant amount of time on a one-on-one -on -one basis in preparing our clients for the questions likely to be asked at the interview. So let me spend a little bit of time talking about what some of the hot E2 issues are. So uh, Oliver and Jessica did a wonderful job of going through what the normal requirements are, but what are, what are some of the issues that come up? Well, source of funds is an interesting issue. Those of you listening know that source of funds is, is a, a very meticulous and time-consuming and exhausting process when it comes to EB-5. Now, for E2, there is not the same level of detail that's required to prove source of funds. You do have an overarching requirement to show that your source of funds come from legal sources, but you don't have to uh, uh, go through every, uh, every transaction, every dollar to show where each dollar came from. Some US consulates want more, some less, but in all cases, it's, uh, it's less exhaustive than it is with EB-5. The issue comes up a lot, well, can I put my investment in escrow until the E-2 visa is approved? And the answer is sometimes. If you're buying an existing business or 50% of an existing business, uh, uh, putting the investment in escrow is usually fine. If you're starting a brand new business, then it becomes a little bit more complicated. You have to show that your investment is irrevocably committed, which means that if it is an escrow, the escrow agreement has to make very clear that immediately upon the issuance of the E-2 visa, the money goes to the business. But this clashes against another requirement of E-2, uh, that the business has to be close to the actual start of operations. Uh, and again, different U.S. consulates have different views on this, but some U.S. consulates want to see that the business is actually in operation. And if 100% of the investment is in escrow, then obviously there's no business going on. We recommend where possible that at least some of the investment actually have flowed through to the business uh, before we actually go for the E-2 visa interview uh, and if possible, being able to show that the business has actually started operations. One thing that there's some misunderstanding about is uh, what we call dual intent. Uh, and, and that is the question of, well, if I'm an E-2 visa applicant and I've already applied for a green card, uh, is that okay? Is there a conflict there? Uh, and the answer is usually that's not a problem. And in fact, many, of our successful E-2 visa applicants do in fact have pending EB-5 petitions or other green card applications in the US. The E-2 applicant does have to show that he or she has an intent to leave the US before applying for a green card. So if in fact an EB-5 application has been pending, first of all, hopefully, I know when we do all of our EB-5 applications, it always indicates that the applicant intends to apply outside the U.S., so that is consistent with the E-2. Uh, we also have the client sign a statement and be prepared at an interview to explain that if, uh, even though they may eventually get a green card, they will definitely be leaving the U.S. before they apply for the green card. The next issue that's uh, hot and, and at some U.S. consulates uh, is the question of develop and direct, which Jessica discussed. So we, we do know that a lot of our high net worth individuals uh, are not particularly interested in being day-to-day -day managers of a business in the U.S. And in order to meet the develop and direct requirement, they do not have to be the day-to-day -day manager. They can hire a manager. Uh, but they do have to show that they will at least oversee the operation. That doesn't mean showing up at the office every day, uh, but it does mean that they will not be 100% passive. They will be receiving information about the status of the business. <clears throat> they will be consulting with the managers. They will be giving their opinions on how things should go forward. Now, specifically for CBI investors, Issues that come up are English language ability. How are you going to develop and direct the business if you don't speak English? We talked about choice of consulates. 
Some U.S. consulates want to see what they call a nexus with the CBI country. So if we're using Grenada as an example, it may be better if the person has at least spent some time, uh, even if no more than a week or two, in, in Grenada. That's not a legal requirement. Um, uh, using our Chinese case as an example, um, we've done many successful cases for Chinese clients who have never uh, set foot in Grenada. We recommend that it's better to do so, but in many cases it doesn't come up as an issue. Um, we like to show some relationship between the experience of our client and the business in the U.S., although again, that's not required. It's a credibility issue. If our client has no background in this business, we want to show how they're still even, you know, they have management experience in other lines of business, or they have some background that makes it sensible that they may be able to direct and develop this business in the U.S. We talked about issues if the EB-5 petition is filed. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about is uh, we believe it is better if the investment for the E-2 is made before someone actually obtains, uh, I'm sorry, if it's made after someone actually obtains their citizenship in Grenada or Turkey or Montenegro. We prefer that the investment be made at a time when our client is in fact a citizen of the treaty country. Now, before we get to Q&A, let me close by talking about the issue of choosing a CBI country. Now, I mentioned before that um, of the, there's about 10 or 11 different countries in the world that have citizenship by investment programs. And of those three, uh, have treaties with the U.S. Um, and there, are, you know, for many of our clients, there are a choice between the countries. Now, the last blog in the trilogy that I did, uh, which was uh, done, uh, which was published a few weeks ago, uh, dealt with this issue specifically and comparing and contrasting Grenada, Turkey, and Montenegro. Uh, as a country that's available for citizenship by investment, which would then engender an E-2 visa application. So uh, if, if you're interested in this, I, I highly commend uh, reading that blog. But basically, what, what uh, for today's purposes, uh, what you see on the screen uh, are nine different categories that I chose as being the most relevant uh, issues uh, that my clients tend to use in choosing a CBI country. And they're more or less uh, in the order of priority and, and importance in, in the choice. So for example, length of visa uh, is often a determining factor uh, because the E2 visa in Grenada and Turkey uh, can be issued for five years whereas the E-2 visa for Montenegro under what's called the reciprocity schedule can only be issued for one year. And that may be a determining factor by itself. As I mentioned in the blog, uh, there was a study recently done of the three CBI countries uh, using some of these factors and some other factors. Uh, and that study chose Grenada as being the most optimal of the CBI countries. But again, that may be different for uh, different people. I would say a majority of our clients uh, so far have chosen Grenada. Uh, Turkey and Montenegro are newer to this. Uh, Grenada has been doing it for a longer period of time. So I'm not going to go through uh, each of these categories because I did uh, uh, review each country uh, against each of these nine different criteria in the blog. And as I mentioned before, if you're interested in this uh, uh, I commend reading the blog. So we, we do have lots of questions uh, that, that people have asked, and uh, so we are going to be getting to that. Uh, before I, I do that, let me, um, let me mention that I mentioned at the onset that uh, the program is co-sponsored by our law firm, Glasgow Immigration Law Partners, and the Investment Migration Council. Uh, I want to uh, mention that our law firm is the North American Regional Office of the Investment Migration Council, and I have the honor of serving on the advisory board of the IMC, 
And I do want to, again, highly recommend, if you're interested in this subject or any aspect of investment migration, uh, that you attend the annual forum of the Investment Migration Council, <clears throat> which this year will be in Brussels from June 2 to June 4. So uh, without further ado, as I said, we have lots of questions. And uh, let me get started by, uh, uh, by asking a few of them. You're continuing to send in questions, and we'll try to review them as quickly as you send them in and answer as many as possible. Um, so, Jessica, uh, one, of, one of the questions is um, uh, someone who talks about uh, Indian clients uh, who are concerned with the lengthy EB-5 processing um, and uh, want to know if they can file for E-2 and then for EB-5. So I think we've, we've addressed this, but do you want to talk a little bit more about uh, whether and how E-2 can be uh, used as a, a fast track to the U.S. for those people? Yeah, so we were talking about this. Um, you can certainly do um, an E2 investment and kind of use that as a stepping stone uh, for EB-5. Um, we would prefer if the E2 was, was filed first, um, and we certainly want to talk with you before you get started. So um, as, I, as Oliver discussed, the, the E2 has the requirement that the E2 investor has to own or, or a national of the treaty company country has to own 50% of the business. Um, therefore, uh, we want to be able to structure the investment so that you'll own 50% for the E2 and that can be maintained through the EB-5. And while there's no job creation number requirement for the E2, there is for the EB-5. So we would need to find a business um, and investment structure that would allow for 50% ownership um, would need enough capital to qualify for EB-5, so 900,000 or 1.8 million, depending on where the business is located, and that will ultimately result in the creation of 10 or more jobs. Um, and, and I think the investment amount part um, is, is critical too. Uh, so it was mentioned at the beginning that um, an EB-5 investment can be 900,000 in a TEA or 1.8 million in a non-TEA. So when we're making the initial E2 investment, if the 900,000 investment amount is critical, we want to not only find um, a project that needs that amount of capital, but a project project that is located in an area that qualifies for the reduced investment amount. So while EB5 is flexible, EB5 is less flexible. Uh, so we just need to plan very carefully at the beginning. Yeah. Oliver, why don't you take the next one, um, uh, which is uh, a, a question that uh, the person says that under E2, they understand the children must be under 21 to, to be included in the E2. Uh, what do most families do after the child reaches the age of 21? What, what options exist for the child to continue to stay in the U.S.? Um, so start. So start with, uh, I think that it's, uh, the, this question is very good because it talks about the fact that uh, the E2 deriv derivative status is granted to a child who's uh, younger than 21. And as soon as the child reaches the age of 21, the child will no longer be an E2 derivative under the initial E2 application by the applicant. Um, so I think there are a few options. Uh, one option is the child can, uh, can switch from E2 to an F1 student. Uh, and then Maybe the child can apply for an OPT after F1, uh, the graduation, and uh, potentially uh, the E2 company can sponsor for H1B, but of course the H1B is subject to a lottery. Uh, so it's, it's one route that, can potent that the child can potentially, potentially take. Another uh, route I think is probably if the child is qualified to be an E2 manager, uh, let's say if it's a Grenada, Grenada, Grenada company, the child also has Grenada passport. So this is an E2 Grenada company uh, that employs an E2 Grenada manager. So the manager requirement is different from an investor requirement. It does not require any investment by the manager, but uh, the manager does need to show that it has the ability, uh, this, the, the knowledge and ability to manage the business. So if the child has some business background, 
maybe we can show that the business uh, the, the business can sponsor an e2manager, the child can be an e2manager under the same business. I think those are probably the two most possible solutions. The next question we have talks about a uh, um, uh, someone who has Nigerian clients in the EB5Q uh, who are now concerned with the latest travel ban issued by the Trump administration that now includes Nigeria. Um, and the question is, can a Nigerian national um, apply for uh, CBI and E2 visa and then move forward toward EB5? Now, this is brand new, the travel ban that added on Nigeria and other countries that just happened within the last month or so. Uh, and here's the answer. The, unlike the travel ban that included Iran and other countries in the first level of travel ban, this new travel ban is different for different countries. And the travel ban for Nigerian citizens does not prevent them from getting E2, from getting what's called non-immigrant visas, including E2 visas. Uh, it can prevent them from getting green cards, which would include EB5. So uh, if we, uh, and this is not hypothetical, we in fact do have Nigerian clients. Um, and so we are an, able to proceed with the process of getting them citizenship in, uh, uh, in uh, one of the three countries I mentioned and proceeding with the E2 visa application. Uh, and But then at least for now, we can't go forward with the EB5 uh, for those clients uh, unless it appears that they're gonna be eligible for a waiver of the travel ban. Now, I should mention in this context that uh, another uh, uh, benefit of obtaining a passport in a second or third country uh, has to do with the travel ban. So there are now, I haven't counted them, but about uh, 12 or 14 countries in the world that are subject to one or the other of the travel bans that the Trump administration has established. Now the travel ban does not apply to a dual citizen of two countries if, if the client will be using the passport of the second country and that second country is not subject to the travel ban. So even for people who have no interest in E2 visas, uh, if they are um, going to be using a second country passport uh, at the time they are going to be applying they should not be subject to the travel ban. So going full circle back to the Nigerian client, if the Nigerian client does in fact obtain a, for example, a Grenada passport for the E2, the client may be able to avoid uh, the effect of the travel ban ultimately for an EB5 green card. Uh, Jessica, next question. At what stage would it be best for the Plasco firm to be involved with the E2 application? Would you recommend getting involved after or during the Grenada application? Uh, so we would recommend getting involved during the Grenada application. And the reason for that is, is just that it does take some time um, to compile the documentation needed for the E2 application. Uh, so while we can't have someone actually apply for the E2 until the, the other citizenship is obtained, we can get everything ready to go so that the minute that passport is in hand, we can go ahead and submit the application and get on with the rest of the process. There isn't necessarily a need to wait to get started until after the, the passport is obtained, while there is a need to wait to actually submit until the passport is obtained. Oliver, the next question is for you. Uh, and the question is exactly how soon can a person move to the US after the E2 visa application is approved uh, and moving with their family? Um, so the answer is they can move to the US uh, immediately after they receive the E2 visa. So E2 visa, as I said, is a non-immigrant visa. So similar to like an F1 visa or a B1, B2 visa, 
as as soon as you get a visa, you may use the visa to enter the U.S. and get the E2 status. One thing I do want to mention is in terms of family planning, or once the applicant E2 investor gets into the U.S., if the spouse wants to work, because as Jessica mentioned, uh, the spouse of the E2 investor uh, does have the ability to work anywhere in the U.S. Uh, as soon as they get in, uh, it may be beneficial for, for the spouse to apply for the employment authorization document immediately. But other than that, uh, the answer to the question is uh, as soon as possible. All right, I'll take the next question, which is this. Um, it's uh, The question is for Indian clients. Um, uh, since India does not allow dual citizenship, uh, and uh, the questioner talks about the fact that uh, if the Indian uh, citizen obtains a passport in, in Grenada or Turkey or another country, um, it could compromise the investor's ownership rights to agricultural land in India. So with that as an introduction, the questioner is uh, asking, can the Grenada application be structured so that only one of the spouses would apply for the passport? And the answer to that is yes. Um, and then the other spouse would retain their Indian passport and accompany the Grenada spouse as a dependent. And the answer to that is yes. So uh, uh, summarizing it, it is uh, perfectly fine for only one of two spouses to obtain citizenship in the CBI country. And then the other spouse, even though that spouse is not a citizen of the CBI country, can come as an E2 dependent. Uh, and as was mentioned earlier in the webinar, that spouse who is an E2 dependent, even though he doesn't have a Grenada or Turkey or Montenegro passport, uh, has all the benefits of an E2 spouse, which includes the ability to work in the US for any employer he or she wants to work for <clears throat> without employer sponsorship. Next question, uh, Jessica, why don't you take this? Um, how does a visa extension work? Uh, and does it involve an in-person interview? <clears throat> yeah, so um, after the, uh, the end of the first visa term, um, we would work with you to apply for an extension. Um, so we would show that all of the requirements of the E2 treaty are still um, applicable and, and the business is is operating. Um, and then Ron, when do we recommend that they start the renewal process? So uh, it, it's a good idea to um, ha have us involved in reviewing your business periodically during the five years um, because if, if your business is is failing or troubled, uh, that can affect your status in the U.S. When you're an E2, your only ability to remain in the U.S. is if your E2 business is, is in fact continuing and you're continuing to develop and direct it. So if your business is in jeopardy of perhaps going out of business, uh, we want to do some planning for you. And so part of that planning could be, for example, uh, that maybe you want to make an investment in another business. Uh, and then we can get that business approved as an E2 business uh, before your existing business goes out of business so that we're able to continue your legal status in the U.S. So we do recommend <clears throat> perhaps annually uh, a uh, what we might call a checkup uh, where we can just talk about how your business is doing, whether it looks like it will continue to be fine for purposes of the E2 extension. Uh, the E-2 extension is usually a lot easier than the original E-2 application because we've already proved the substantial investment. We proved everything we need to prove. And at the time of the extension, we just have to prove that the business is ongoing, it's viable, you're continuing to develop and direct it. Um, so uh, that would be, uh, you know, the, the, best, uh, the best practice is to uh, have some ongoing review of your business, and that's part of the services that we provide. Um, Oliver, if an 18-year-old student gets investment dollars from his parents and applies for an E-2 as the main applicant, will there be any question from the consulate 
that concerns the 18-year-old's business experience or lack of business experience? Uh, certainly. I think that when the case is being adjudicated at the consulate, the officer will definitely want to make sure that, number one, the investment is uh, a wise and well-thought-out investment because they want the investment to be a real investment, not just a way of bypassing other you know, U.S. immigration requirements to just to get an immigration benefit. So they want to make sure that the investment was made by a seasoned investor. And number two, they want to make sure that uh, the business will be successful, not only that uh, the investment amount is substantial enough to support the future success of the business, but whoever is develop, uh, whoever is developing and directing the business has a business credential to run the business. Having said that, I think it's not a deal breaker because like we mentioned multiple times, uh, E2 is really, uh, there are a lot of soft areas that we can be sometimes creative, right? For example, if even if it's a 15-year-old student, maybe we can explore factors such as, you know, his prior education, his internship experience, uh, you know, his involvement with his parents' business in the past. And uh, as long as we can come up with a reasonable explanation as to how he will develop and direct the business. I'm, I'm presuming that the 18-year-old the student is not going to manage the day-to-day -day of the business. We can probably come up with a good explanation as to why this person, even though he is relatively young, uh, is, still possesses the, the necessary ability to you know, develop and direct the business. Uh, on, on the last question regarding the E2 extensions, I should have mentioned that the normal way of doing the extension uh, is going back to the U.S. consulate uh, the same way you did the first time and making a, a new application for a five-year E-2 visa, which will result in an interview at the U.S. consulate. It is possible to apply for an extension in the U.S. at the USCIS, which does not require an interview, but we rarely do that for a number of reasons, including the fact that if the extension is granted, it's only granted until the person leaves the U.S. The minute he or she leaves the U.S., they'll need to go through the process at the U.S. consulate. Um, so it, it really just creates double work. Um, we have only a few minutes left. I have a number of different questions uh, that relate to the concept of using the E2 business for other purposes, and let me explain. So uh, the, one of the question is, um, uh, is it possible to, uh, you know, for this E2 business to be the source of uh, an EB2, EB2 or EB3 application? That's a green card application. Uh, and the answer is usually not, because in order to apply for a green card through employment, you have to be employed by a company uh, that you do not own. If you own the company, it is almost impossible, certainly extremely difficult, to have that company go through the process of showing that there's no available U.S. workers to replace you. The U.S. Labor Department says that that would not involve what's called good faith recruitment. So without going into a lot of detail, generally, the, the, the route that is going to be used by an E-2 applicant who eventually wants to get a green card uh, is likely not going to be EB2 or EB3, but is much more likely going to be uh, EB5. Um, the, uh, the next question I have is uh, on the issue of uh, the fact that I said it's okay to have a pending immigrant petition and still apply for, uh, for E2 visa. And the questioner asks, if an investor's immigrant petition has been denied, uh, is it possible for him or her to get an E-2 visa? Um, and, and the answer is yes. Uh, so even if it hasn't been denied, even if the EB-5 petition has been approved, it's possible to get an E-2 visa if you can show an, that you definitely plan on leaving the U.S. and applying for your immigrant visa at a U.S. consulate outside of the U.S. Um, certainly the same rule would apply if you have a denied EB-5 petition. Um, and so 
uh, again, in, uh, as we've said, in a number of different contexts, uh, the E2 provides a fair amount of flexibility. So we have uh, gotten through, I'd say, almost all of the questions um, as, as our time expires. Uh, if you have further questions, feel free to contact uh, Jessica or Oliver or myself, and you see our email addresses uh, on the screen in front of you, and we'll be happy to, uh, to talk to you about any further questions or about any clients you have who, who need assistance. So with that said, uh, on behalf of Jessica Nanisi and, uh, and Oliver Yang and uh, myself, Ron Clasco, we thank you very much for uh, attending our webinar. Uh, on the screen, you see where you can sign up for our newsletter um, and, uh, and also uh, following us on, on social media. And again, I commend to you the, uh, the blogs that you, we have on our website, classicallaw.com, on this subject. Thank you all around the world for attending. We hope you found it helpful, and we look forward to working with you in the future.